Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So um, whenever you're ready, as it's a continuous recording, so you can always edit to this, so it's fine. Yep. Hello, bro. Well, let's try that again. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, bro. Hello, bro. Like that Bruce Almighty moment. I think you need to keep that in the edit. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Teacher Standard with myself, Jake. And me, Vinaya. And we've just started our holiday, everyone. We're on holiday, people. Although we're still COVID Christmas at the moment. Yeah, but I don't think it's actually been too bad. I think everyone's just got it, but most people who've had symptoms have had it quite mild, which is a relief. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the life cycle of a virus, isn't it? The first time a new virus comes around, it's quite severe, but after it's made a few rounds, it becomes more infectious and less lethal, which I suppose is the better way for things to go. Yeah, it's exactly like the um, Spanish flu, which is now just the common flu that you get every Christmas at one point it was killing what thousands of people and um over time it mutates so it doesn't kill its host and uh now that's what we call as the common flu so Mm. yeah hopefully covid will be one of those things where it just becomes like a norm yeah here's to hoping that it just becomes a seasonal inconvenience yeah (laughs) um but yeah like how was your term Jake how's it been your what is it has it been 14 weeks 15 week term uh yeah about 15 weeks it's been an interesting time this is the first year that my school has done a two-week half term which was absolutely needed oh that's very private school vibes yeah and you know they seem to have it quite good I feel like uh, we should try and take some more of the uh, benefits the perks of that system how's your (laughs) how's your term been um it's been really great like I moved schools um for those of you that do know so I teach an all-girls school now which is much more contrasting to the school I was previously at and um it's been a really nice environment the area is very different I do miss my old school I do miss like the staff and I do miss the kids but so being here is like a completely different experience but one in which is like a good way so I'm exposed to different things um still like early on in my career so I think that's been quite nice yeah, sounds fantastic. And uh, one of the reasons that you ended up moving was because of the commute, right? Oh, yeah. And guys out there, I finally got my license and I have a car. Um, <laughs> so I will start driving to work now. So it'll be so much better than taking a bus or train. I'm so, uh, jealous. I need to actually go about getting my license. I've been putting it off for maybe about six years now. Oh, it's about time. <clears throat> I think it's like such a massive thing, like commuting as a teacher. You don't realise how much time you waste or just how drained you are from doing it yeah true i do have a bit of a um thing to notify for this podcast so some of my year 11s found the podcast oh did they (laughs) yeah they found the podcast and they uh were coming up to me in the hallways just saying oh mr turn you have a podcast why didn't you mention it (laughs) there's a very good reason i didn't mention it (laughs) (laughs) Have they listened to it? Now, now the cat's out the bag. Yeah, they've listened to it. They enjoyed the Halloween special. They were all talking about the um, the uh, casual dismemberment and the practical problems and things like that. So 
they seem to like it. They seem to have a bit of fun. Oh, that's good. I'm I'm glad that students will finally learn something or just kind of get an insight as to how much hell they put us through. That is a very good point. Hopefully it's something to be learned from and the obligatory shout outs that my pupils have uh, forced me to do. Um, 11X1, 11Y1, uh, AP, JP. You know, I'm only going to use initials because of GDPR, but you know, <laughs> glad you're listening. Hope you continue listening. <laughs> nice to meet you guys um so it's, it has been a while since we recorded an episode and i think both of us have just been drowned in marking and life um but actually i thought it'd be really important we did almost like a two-part episode so we are calling this part one of diversity and inclusion and we are focusing on bame and sort of issues in schools and ways in which schools are trying to tackle those problems that we face um and it's important to mention, actually, our second part will be on the LGBTQ plus community and their representation um, and issues and ways in which schools are trying to sort of um, support that community, which is really important. Um, but we are going to focus on BAME today. And we'd really love if at the end of this episode, people contribute, they share, you know, anything that they've, they've experienced. Um, obviously, Jake and I only work at two schools and we try to reach out to other teachers who work at various schools across the country. But um, if you are someone that works in a school and knows ways in which schools are trying to tackle certain issues, and that's, you know, something really positive that you could share, we'd love to hear from you. So um, do drop us a message on Instagram or comment on the post that will follow um, and we're really excited to kind of share that on the following episode after. Um, so just kind of kicking off, um, I mean, I was looking at what the definition of diversity is. And Jake, you can either agree or disagree with me because this is something I kind of Googled. Was um, Diversity is the variety of people, including ethnic origins and sexual orientations. So we are kind of just focusing on the blame at the moment. Um, and the second part of this episode uh, later on will be on the LGBTQ plus community. I think that sounds pretty close to what I would define as diversity. You know, there's that cultural aspect and then there's sort of the uh, lifestyle or the background that contributes to, you know, the people that make up a population. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I actually found this quite hard to research. A lot of the studies were kind of to do with not the UK specifically, it was more the, the wider world, especially like the US or other parts of uh, countries. And I was trying to, um, I guess, find some like wholesome statistics and just look at what the general picture was. And I think one thing is to say is that schools are trying to become more diverse. Um, it is still kind of an ongoing progress of development, especially when, you know, you and I were at school, which wasn't such a long time ago less than 10 years ago but what it was then and what it is now there are still issues that exist but there are ways in which schools are actually trying to tackle that which is really positive um what I did see was that these statistics um show that there has been an increase in the number of students from ethnic backgrounds that have joined British um schooling which kind of again gives the stats towards a more diverse community and I guess educates um the wider population about different cultures and religions um but again like just because the numbers have gone up doesn't mean that the issue a lot of the issues have been resolved and I think we're going to talk a few about them um today yeah credit where credit's due we do need to acknowledge the progress that's been made over the recent uh, I suppose decade or few decades um 
some of the things that I've noticed just seem to be fairly, what's the word? Stubborn. God, really struggle for that word. Uh, <laughs> stubborn issues that are really difficult to resolve. Yeah. And um, I mean, I was just kind of thinking about my own experiences in schools and actually the current school I'm in, they set up a focus group um, where teachers got together to talk about diversity and inclusion as well as pupils and students. And we kind of voiced our opinions and the school has now taken the initiative to kind of listen to everyone and find ways to resolve the matter. Something that was really important is a lot of schools can say that they are multicultural or they are diverse, but something that, you know, one of my SLT said was actually we can't call ourselves a school that's truly diverse or multicultural if we cannot understand or tackle all the micro micro behaviors um, and issues that still um, the school faces. And that's just not, not that school, but you know, every single school in the country has that and has to kind of acknowledge that. And I thought that was really powerful um, and actually a really positive way of looking at it and ways to kind of move forward is actually using student voice. Yes. Student voice is really important when it comes to addressing diversity and inclusion issues because at the end of the day they are the ones that we're trying to help by addressing these issues if we don't have uh pupils feeling like they are included within you know uk schools then they're going to feel isolated and similarly what you're going to end up with is pupils that aren't from those diverse cultures aren't going to really understand people that have different backgrounds to them which can cause it their own set of issues exactly and um i mean i've i couldn't i can't remember the name of the show but i was watching a show where it was somewhere in the midlands there was a school that was in a very um sort of white british area they didn't really have much diversity and the school swapped with students from an area where a much more i think a muslim community and the students swapped housing they went to basically live the opposing life i think for about two weeks um and so much diversity and so much more awareness was made for those students from, you know, the different places because there's so many misconceptions about people's religions and cultures, which have come from, you know, generations or wherever you've grown up. It could be just the environment around you has um, suggested certain ways in which cultures and religions, you know, exist and practice, um, which is sometimes inaccurate. And that misconception can lead to, you know, conflict instead of healthy relationships and healthy understanding of, you know, the people we live with. I think I recognise that show that you're talking about. One of the scenes that sort of um, lingers in my mind was when one child, you know, in that classic innocence that only really children can show, they yeah. were talking to the um, uh, the Muslim child and saying, oh, you don't eat bacon. Oh, I couldn't live without bacon. And the other person, <laughs> it's just really <laughs> sweet, really funny. They <laughs> seemed to get along really well. It was quite adorable. Oh, that that does sound that I think I remember that scene. Um, but yeah, I think that show was actually quite eye opening um, for a lot of people. So some of the issues I've highlighted um, that I will kind of, I guess, talk about and we'll discuss together is stuff that I've noticed, um, maybe I've experienced myself, but also uh, what students have actually voiced to us as teachers when we've talked about this topic with them. Um, the first is religious symbols so I have a story and I, I may have mentioned this before in a previous episode or wherever else um but firstly like the idea that some people 
don't know the origins of certain uh, religious symbols. So, for example, when I was at primary school, um, I, you know, my family have grown up in a with the religion of Jainism and the um, swastika, which is now you know seen in a negative light, was stolen from our religion by Hitler and was flipped and twisted to then form the Nazi symbol. Um, so in primary school, when they had asked us to make a box that was representing religion and culture, you had to knit it. I was knitting, um, well, what looked like the swastika, which wasn't. It was my Jainism symbol, which didn't look like that. Um, I was knitting that and obviously got flagged up for safeguarding, being like, whoa, why is this child drawing the swastika? What's going on here? Um, and, you know, I was about, how long was that? About 10 I'm trying to explain to the teachers that, no, this is my religion, this is Jainism, and they didn't really know what that was until my parents had to educate them and, and tell them about that and tell them the, the history of that symbol. And I found that quite interesting and something that stuck with me because then I almost became embarrassed of my religion because I was scared of what everyone else on the outside was going to look in on me if they didn't know what it meant, especially at that age. Um, and growing up, that is just a story that has stuck with me and something that I found that was really important, that we should educate the people around us about the origins of our symbols and any negative light that has been shot on it you know why that is the case um yeah I don't know have you ever heard of any stories like that I think the stories that I've heard of that relate to that um are generally people not really understanding the significance of head coverings of some of the pupils that I have in my school that are Muslim mm -hmm. uh, for context, the school that I worked at um, up until recently was vast majority white British, and there wasn't much education to do with religious symbols or cultural practices. And so you had a lot of people that would essentially try to pull down uh, sort of head coverings or ask people to take off their head coverings and things like that. And it's just one of those instances that can feel very isolating for someone that practices those um, that have those cultural practices. Yeah, and I think it's in France they've got the ban on students wearing hijabs or people wearing hijabs, is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah that's correct. Yeah, and I think actually that's such a big part of their religion and there is a completely um, understandable understanding around why they do that. And actually it's quite... Um, I find it quite important. I actually find it quite nice. You know, the reason why women do wear a hijab is, from what my understanding is, a sense of um, hiding their beauty, you know, until they're married and they only should really show it to the women around them. Um, so it's something very personal and a woman's beauty is very personal to them. And I find that quite, you know, it's quite poetic. It's quite nice. Um, but again, there are certain places where people don't understand that um, and they push back on that. A thing I've noticed, and I don't know if this is a thing in your school, but many schools have banned students from wearing religious symbols in the form of jewellery. Um, and I, you know, even me as a teacher, I never understood that. I always thought I never really cared if someone wore something that was important to them, whether it was a crucifix, whether it was an orm symbol, whether um, a Sikh was wearing the silver bangle that they wear, because it's important to them, it's important to their religion. Um, but apparently it isn't part of many schools' uniform. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on are, because I'm, I'm going to tell you what I found later about why that is the case. But Jake, 
is does that thing happen in your school where it's been banned that hasn't been banned in my school no um i would be lying if i i feel that it i struggle to see the justification for that i feel that allowing people to express their culture and their religion is fairly central right to a person being within a you know what is ostensibly a, a free nation free society yeah so, so what is the reasoning well this is the thing i struggled and the only thing i really could find was that um a lot of these pieces of jewelry apparently are not a necessity to then practice their religion so if a woman is wearing a hijab that is accepted because that is actively practicing their religion but in what i read was if someone's wearing a crucifix or is wearing an orm symbol that is not a necessity to practice your religion and i found that quite like uh you know who are we to say how someone can practice their religion it's something that they're proud of something they have faith in and a lot of the time it's quite nice to have that sentimental value on you it's not about trying to convert or trying to encourage others around you it's solely for yourself i think that's the reason why people wear religious um symbols it's for themselves um so i mean i don't completely agree with that rule i i'd, I'd like to know why it exists so if anyone out there does have a, a a better reason or understanding as to why rules like that exist please let us know um, I'm struggling to find information around that. Yeah, my thinking is that it's unnecessary and uh, not to maybe offend anyone that has a better reasoning for it, but it feels a bit presumptuous, as you said, to uh, essentially say to someone what is essential to your uh, religious or cultural practices. Exactly. Um, right, next thing of an issue um, that was raised by students, and actually I've experienced this myself, is um, not being aware of the type of foods from different cultures and students reacting to those foods as being disgusting, if it looks unpleasant without having tried it, um, and kind of making an opinion about it before they've even experienced it. I've had it done to me before at school I I tend to bring in a lot of Indian cooking that my mum makes lovely like food and then I've been at you know I've been at times where students have made fun of what I'm eating just because it doesn't look so appealing to them they've never seen it before never experienced it before I found that really offensive um but for me to be able to stuck up for myself at that time like I didn't feel strong enough to do so I kind of just ignored it and brushed it aside but the more I think about it and the more I become a teacher I'm like no we need to kind of educate you know students around us of our cultures and what's comprised of them i think that sounds quite close to the experience of quite a lot of pupils throughout the country uh in the uk and from what i understand quite a lot in the usa where someone who comes from a culture that has maybe a cuisine that involves a lot of spices or fermented ingredients and things like that uh, other pupils that are from the you know that are more familiar with the local cuisine, mm -hmm. uh, sort of isolate that pupil and make fun of their cuisine. And I do think that's particularly cruel. Yeah, it is. And it's strange to think that that was kind of acceptable when we were at school, but now I think about it and it just rages me. Um, but I was just thinking of ways in which we can tackle these problems. Um, and one way which kind of links to another issue which a lot of students have recently raised, which I found really interesting because I never really had a massive 
issue with this because I never thought about it so deeply. Um, maybe because I'm not a huge religious person myself, but um, this idea of equal celebration of religious events rather than just highlighting a few. So, for example, this country is primarily Christian. It remains around Christianity. And so we celebrate Christmas massively. But obviously there are different um, what religious groups in different schools. And so they celebrate different events, um, I guess, in a higher priority. Well, of course, uh, Christmas, the holidays in the school calendar are the Christmas holidays, the Easter holidays and things like that. And there's relatively passing consideration to other religious holidays. I think it's something that impacts both staff as well as pupils in schools. Um, I've been aware of staff within my school that have struggled to be able to get time out in order to celebrate, um, you know, Islamic traditional holidays uh, because the administration of the school didn't really understand or appreciate the importance of those holidays to those cultures, which is, you know, something that might not really occur to someone who isn't from something that isn't the mainstream religion or culture. And what, I mean, what students have said is that those that celebrate other events, may it be Diwali, may it be, you know, Hanukkah, may it be even a religion which is much smaller and isn't one of the main big five, um, is that they their religious events are kind of glossed over at school, which is a place where they spend most of their time. And they want to kind of have more of a voice or have more of a celebration or more of an acknowledgement. So one way in which we kind of discuss this with schools and what I've kind of read and what's you know, happened at ours is um, we are kind of forming a calendar where we have all the significant events of religions on there. And so looking at the database of the type of students that we have and the religious practices that they go about, we input their big events into the calendar. And on those specific days, there should be some sort of lunchtime event uh, for those group of students so that they have an opportunity to celebrate and that there should be some sort of bulletin that goes out to all students to say, you know, whether it's happy Diwali, happy Hanukkah, um, you know, Eid Mubarak, so that all these students felt like they're inclusive in in the school community. And I thought that was really powerful because actually that makes such a big difference and it creates some sort of pride within students to actually carry on, you know, celebrating um, their religion and not having to conform to just the British society of celebrating just Christmas. That's an interesting idea. I think that could be beneficial to have more schools have that in place. I'd wonder if that is a common practice, if anyone has any other similar um, practices within their school that align with that. We'd be interested to hear about it. Yeah, and I think um, tied into that was this idea of if there is a certain event, then the food that's kind of associated with that event would be presented. Um, so students would actually go try um, the different types of foods from different cultures. And I thought that was quite, that's quite a, a good idea um, that schools are trying to do now. And then that will actually make quite a good positive change in the future. Um, yeah. Have you got anything that you've read? Right, so I wanted to sort of, Whilst we were talking about things that are related to our own personal experiences to begin with, um, I thought I'd go in 
with that to start before I go into the research that I've gotten. Yeah, go for it. Cool. Right, so from my own perspective, so for reference, I am of mixed descent. So I have some Chinese heritage, Jamaican heritage, um, uh, Eastern European, and then partly British. So I'm a bit of a melting pot in of myself. And when I was in school, I was a... I was quite vocal about being mixed race. Um, within my school, we were relatively, relatively diverse. But one thing that seemed to happen when with people that were of mixed descent is that they wouldn't really find themselves uh, identifying with either group that they uh, supposed had uh, links to cultural or, you know, um, uh, cultural or descendant sort of links to and I think that is an issue that I've read as being quite a common issue especially when it comes to people that are from a mix of Caucasian and African or Afro-Caribbean descent these people have a tendency to feel like they don't really belong to either one and I find that's quite an interesting phenomenon because you'd sort of think that they would be able to mingle or identify with both and often the case is the opposite they don't really identify with either oh so question for you what do you identify with um generally in order just to keep things simple i just say that i am of mixed descent and then i mentioned that i have european afro-caribbean and chinese um and usually that comes after a conversation with someone where they've asked, where are you from? And I mm. say, well, I was born here. And then usually the follow-up question is, no, where are you really from? Or where are you originally from? Oh, I've, I've had too many of that. No, but where are you really from? Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Because you know what? Every time I go on holiday and someone asks my family, um, you know, it could just be a foreigner or a local to them. Um, oh, yeah, you know, where are you from? They're expecting me to say India. And um, I go, oh, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from Britain. I live in London. And they go, oh, no, but where are you really from? Oh, okay, I'm born in Kenya. I'm an East African. Oh, no, but where are you really from? Okay, you just want me to say I'm Indian. Just, you know, I don't know why, for what reason. Um, but it, it kind of always bugs me every time they ask me that question. I don't know why. It bugs a lot of people. I, yeah, I don't really have an answer to that. I have a theory. Uh, I think that the issue surrounding that set of questions, I don't think there's necessarily a malice towards it. I think it's a curiosity that is sort of gone about in an incourteous, discourteous way. So when I say that I'm from the UK and someone says, no, where are you really from? The implication is that because I don't look exactly like your standard Caucasian person, that I don't really have a right to the identity of being from the UK or being English. Right. And whilst that implication may or may not be intended, that's how it comes across. It's one of those things that's like a microaggression, right? Something that is sort of said, there's not really much thought behind it, but it has this impact and it makes a person feel a certain way. What do you think about that? No, I, I completely agree. And um, I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but when I moved to this country, I had a really thick Kenyan accent. 
like proper thick. And it was a mix between a Kenyan accent and an Indian accent um, because my family speaks Swahili a lot um, and, and Gujarati in English. So when I came here and I went to a very non-diverse primary school that was pretty much in special measures, it was kind of wild. Um, the students there just couldn't wrap their head around an Indian person that could speak English in an African accent. And it became quite a thing for a couple of years. Um, they kind of got used to it, but for a lot of people, it was a very new experience. And it, they did, you know, it, it did end up with them kind of taking the mick out of, you know, what I would say or the way I'd say things. Um, and, you know, people got used to it because they got exposed to it and they understood, well, actually, there are Asians in East Africa. That That is a thing. Um, but again, it's still on this idea that it kind of felt like, oh, no, you, you aren't really who you, you are. You don't really look like that person. Um, and you know, even sometimes growing up, actually, like year seven, year eight, when people are like, "Oh, where are you from?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm from Kenya." They go, "But you're Indian," and I'm like, "Yeah." They goes, "But do you have like a do you have black parents?" I'm like, "No, that's not how genetics works." Like my Indian family <laughs> went on a boat, they moved to East Africa, and then they repopulated until you know I was born. That that that's how it works. Um, and you know, I'm sat here right now, face palming myself, but yeah. It, it's that is the reality that there are a lot of people that aren't educated about the way in which cultures and groups of people can move around the world and exist in different countries than their origin so yeah yeah there's like two aspects to that isn't there there's almost this presumption that the person that you're speaking to thinks that they know better than you do your own identity which is one thing that i did experience quite a lot in school i would explain uh how I'm mixed race and generally people would just say no you're white or no you look Chinese so you're probably just Chinese and like that sounds to my own ears that sounds ridiculous but that is genuinely some of the things that people said and then there's that aspect of people tend to have relatively unkind or not very considered thoughts to do things that they're not familiar with there's actually a bias to do with it. It's the bias of familiarity. Uh, people will tend to have uh, more nuanced thoughts or more, you know, uh, sympathetic or more positive attitudes towards things that are familiar to them or things that they've seen before. So if something comes along that's novel, people have a tendency to almost distrust it or to try and interrogate it more. Interesting. I love that part of psychology that you just dropped there. No, I like the way you phrase that, actually. I can really, I can identify to that quite a lot. Um, yeah. Have you got anything that you've read about? Oh, yes. So um, a decent amount of what I've got has come from a combination of what uh, peers within uh, the educational industry have said to me and what I've found in my reading. So uh, what I did find quite interesting and something that I wanted to go back to was some of the curricular issues to do with diversity. Oh, right? yeah, go on. So the UK curriculum, uh, as we both are probably quite aware of, is relatively focused upon European, maybe some American advancements within uh, their subjects. Yeah. And the government guidance is that it is essentially up to the school's discretion to build up diversity on top of the existing national curriculum, which is essentially a do what you want. I'm not 
going to force you or encourage you to do things either way. And I think that that's quite problematic in a fair few schools. So let's think about that guidance when it comes to a school that doesn't have very much diversity in its population, where it's a majority white British population. All right, that may well end up being seen as a area that shouldn't be given as much attention. Uh, maybe that will end up with schools uh, placing more focus on other uh, aspects of their curriculum or their offering that they believe will put them into a positive light or will get engagement from their pupils because in low diversity areas you can end up with low diversity staff and low diversity staff aren't really going to notice to the same extent some of the issues that are subject to um, people from BAME communities. Yeah. What do you think? No, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think that's quite interesting that you picked up on that. So a couple of the issues that um, seem to arise from that, from both staff and pupils uh, that I've spoken to and that I've read about, is that some of the initiatives that can be put out can feel a bit tokenistic, right? So things like a, a couple of presentations that are included in Black History Month, and in some cases I've read about practically um, all of BAME being attached into just Black History Month. And that kind of feels a bit iffy to me because Black History Month should be about what it's what it says on the tin. It should be about Black history, not BAME history. Yeah. Um, and not really addressed elsewhere in the year. And when you only have this one month where these things are addressed, you end up with this instance of sometimes people saying, well, why isn't there a White History Month? When what I end up wanting to say to them is the rest of the year is White History Month. So <laughs> can we just focus on the Black History Month right now, please? Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree. And I think it's it's almost it's almost strange that we have to highlight a whole month for a certain community because we cannot seem to incorporate it into the general curriculum throughout the whole year. It seems like the issue is quite structural. Because there isn't any moves to, you know, insert more of this into the regular curriculum, we end up with this sort of lumping into one space of time, uh, everything that we would mm -hmm. usually spread out through a whole curriculum. Another thing to do with this is that um, oftentimes the burden of providing BAME education can be lumped onto BAME staff within the school that have an appropriate background. Uh, so one of my uh, colleagues had this issue where she was essentially put in charge of the education for Black History for that month and throughout the rest of the year, which is quite a large and additional workload, but without any appropriate compensation in terms of either uh, monetary compensation or lightening of workload elsewhere. That's Yeah, that is really interesting. Actually, in fact whenever it comes to this idea of increased, you know, increasing more diversity, whether it's clubs or awareness on cultures and religions, there has always been this thing where the school doesn't feel like they are somewhat trained or well-educated enough to deliver a certain club for a certain religious group uh, or a cultural background because they haven't got anyone that represents that that's in the staff community. Um, and like even with certain religious groups that were set up, they said, well, actually a member of staff set that up 
the school didn't set that up um, because they just didn't feel like they were knowledgeable enough to do something like that. Um, which, you know, I don't blame them in certain aspects. Um, I guess sometimes they don't want to miscommunicate the wrong things. They just would rather have someone who's more educated in that region. But again, like, we should be educating those that maybe are not necessarily from that particular culture or race, you know, about the others. Well, yeah, the support needs to come from both the top level. So, the, for example, if we're looking at Academy Trust, it needs to come from SLT within that particular school. It also needs to come from the trust. But uh, essentially, this is all to help support and leverage the enthusiasm of some of the staff in the main body that would be willing to put energy and effort into these projects. You know, these, these people are wanting to help out, try and make that easier for them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, so um, apparently a relatively uh, controversial issue from the last couple of years, ever since the... Um, you know, the uptake of uh, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. Uh, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on critical race theory? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, oh, okay. I think when it comes to aspects of racism, I mean, we cannot say that everyone, every single race is not racist. It's not just white people are racist. The Asian community is racist. I'm sure other communities are equally racist against others. And that's because of such a massive history of conflict between the races and misunderstanding of each other's cultures and beliefs. Um, I think the way teachers have kind of tackled on white priv privilege, I don't think it should be a thing where we should kind of categorize as like, oh, you know, everyone fits in this one umbrella. I think it's just more of a the general thing and the general trends and the general stats are saying that if given a certain situation, a a white person or a white male is statistically more likely to have this opportunity over maybe someone who's BAME. Um, I think it's it's so difficult because I, I think we're kind of growing up in a community now where students are becoming more aware and it's really great to see lots of communities supporting those who are oppressed. Um, I don't know how it feels to be a white person and to hear that, to feel like everyone kind of says to you that you know you've got this privilege you should be lucky um yeah I don't know because every time I hear that you know you're a brown female you have to kind of work extra hard um I always hear it from older generations that like oh you know why Indians are never kind of considered like leaders or at the top is because we kind of work a lot and so we're kind of expected to stay at that level and no one would be there to kind of take our jobs and I'm there like whoa okay that's really extreme thinking but I mean What's the wider picture around this? I really don't know. I think an issue with it is what you tacked onto there is that people who are, you know, from uh, the UK and are of uh, Caucasian descent do have a particular emotional reaction to the term white privilege. And I think a part of that is to do with how the concept is communicated to them. Mm. Essentially, what it sounds like is saying, you're white, your life is easy. Right. And it often is communicated without the accompanying aspects of uh, neurotypical privilege or uh, able bodied privilege or economic privilege. You know, there's a whole variety of different aspects that if you essentially do 
if you are neurotypical, you don't struggle with something like um, autism, depression, anxiety, or other mental health issues or um, neurotypical issues. If you are able-bodied, if you are from a wealthy background, that those do tend to afford you certain benefits because there are systems within society that tend to work towards or work with those criteria in mind. Mm. But just because you have uh, certain privileges doesn't mean that your life is easy. You might have economic privilege, white privilege, and you might be able-bodied and you might be neurotypical, but maybe your home life is difficult, right? It's not saying that you have no right to struggle and you have no right to be happy with the progress that you make. It's just something that you should be considering when you're essentially making an assessment of someone else who comes from a different background to you. No, I completely agree. And actually, I mean, look at the school stats. In a lot of the um, disadvantaged background areas, white males are a significant proportion of that. And that's not white privilege there. That's just the home lives are very different. And unfortunately, there is such a large, you know, category of um, those students that will not have the equal opportunities that people think that they're going to have just because of their race. I think a lot of it is now coming onto like, I think it's more socioeconomic is becoming the big divider. Apparently, only 6% of school leaders are from um, BAME backgrounds, according to the I can believe that. education. I can believe that. Yeah, from my current experience and from the experience of uh, other teachers that I've spoken to and other schools that I've seen, I can believe that. I think that it is problematic but also, isn't the number of teachers just generally there is a very low percentage of BAME teachers across the country? Um, I actually I'm not that familiar with the uh, distribution of ethnicities amongst teachers. Um, I do tend to see that most of the people from BAME backgrounds are found within either middle management or lower. Okay. Oh, here we go. Found some figures. It says in 2019, 85.7% of all teachers in state-funded schools in England were white British. And 92.7% of head teachers were white British. And this is from the government website. Could you say those stats for me again, please? Yeah. So um, in 2019, 85.7% of all teachers in state-funded schools in England were white British with 92.7% of head teachers were also white British, and 75.8% of teachers were women, and there were more female than male teachers in every ethnic group. Interesting stats. Okay. Um, now I'm trying to crunch what I imagine is some form of calculus into how um, those numbers should filter through uh, you know, incrementally higher positions within the school structure. Mm. <laughs> I feel that if there is, say, roughly 13% of the educational sector of teachers are non-white British, then we should see those percentages roughly corresponding to higher management and senior leadership. 
but there's in fact an increase in more for head teachers than general teachers, which I find quite interesting. Sorry? Well, the head teacher stats is higher than the teacher stat. So there is a lower percentage of ethnic um, diverse head teachers. Now I'm questioning the validity of having brought this up because now now it sounds ill considered. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, as in as in the stats make sense. It, there's just there's hardly any BAME teachers and there's hardly any um BAME head teachers. But is that because that they don't tend to enter the profession or I mean, this is the whole of England. How diverse is every aspect of England? I mean, there's a lot of communities up in the north which have a very small BAME population, so it makes sense why the figures may look like this. Yeah, so it seems to be an issue with recruitment of teachers from diverse backgrounds in order to enter the teacher pool. Yeah, I mean, it looks like that. Um, But I don't know, like, management is quite difficult. Do you think? Uh, Yeah, I think I just made the assumption that considering uh, the UK is relatively diverse, that, you know, a reasonable proportion of that diversity would enter into the teaching profession. But do you think just where we live, meaning London and South London, is more diverse than going up north of England? Yeah, I've fallen victim to another bias. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it, as in, like, I didn't know this. It was only until I went to uni and I, I made a friend from a girl who was from York. And she was like, um, Vanai, you know, like, you're like my first coloured friend. And I was like, what? Her town is just full of white British. No, no Bane background at all. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, my school was relatively high proportion of people from non-white British backgrounds and then similarly with my university and then our intake at teach first was was in my memory it's relatively diverse it was very diverse yeah yeah. but I think I think that's really positive that we have got teaching programs though that exist now that are very diverse and I don't think their stats are based on like you know how many Asian people can we recruit how many black people can we recruit but actually how many good people can we recruit that's quite powerful. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, Jake, actually. Um, so, your name's Jake. How many teachers have ever got your name wrong? Um, well, they've got my last name wrong. Really? How have they pronounced your last name? Oh, they've spelt it wrong in the sense that they've written the number. Like ah. T-E-N, sometimes one zero. I don't know if that <laughs> is misunderstanding or they think it's some kind of funny joke uh my first name no never been mispronounced except for calling me jack which i think is just a memory issue okay um so let's just take your surname for example how did it make you feel every time they try to misspell it wrong it feels odd i think i don't think that it is immediately clear that the last name ten has uh roots within China. So I think that they just think it's a funny, unusual name. It just confuses me, really. Okay, and I'm I'm glad you said that because what students um have raised is how teachers not all teachers, but a lot of teachers that 
are from non-BAME backgrounds tend to not put an effort into learning their real names and they feel almost a slight sort of imbalance or injustice that you know when you read a register and they can pronounce like all the classic names all the really easy ones but when it comes to one that comes from a certain cultural background or a slightly different language where they struggle or they don't make an effort don't ask you know to be corrected and students feel embarrassed and they feel embarrassed about their name and origin to even a point where certain students just end up changing their name for the majority of their schooling life because they've just given up on you know the adults around them or even the kids around them um trying to pronounce their name what are your thoughts on that it always makes me a bit sad when i have someone that is clearly from uh, some other culture that has a unique name and they essentially just say no just call me eleanor or something like that and it's just like you have a really lovely name and I want to refer to you by that I might mispronounce it the first time but I think it takes so little effort when you're doing your first register to say to your pupils if I mispronounce your name please correct me I will make an effort to say your name correctly yeah exactly and um I mean I've experienced this a lot I think I gave I came to a point where it's just constantly like every lesson it was just like no my name is Vinaya it's not Vinya, it's not Vanya, like just read it letter for letter. Um, but there are students out there which, you know, I always felt I always felt like this. Whenever my, I knew my name was coming up in a register and it was someone new who was reading my name out, I would feel embarrassed because I automatically know that the response in the room is going to be like a little snigger or like, oh my God, she called you this. And then they were just going to carry on calling me that as a joke. Um, but it's like, well, you'll never get the name Melissa wrong. You'll never get the name Sarah wrong. Um, I don't see anyone taking the you know the mick out of that. That is your own identity, um, and I'm quite strong about this because I I do feel for students that end up being ashamed of what they were named to the point where they actually just change their whole name um, just so they can conform to society because society doesn't want to sort themselves out and actually learn the proper pronunciation of that name. It's such a simple and minor thing to try and accommodate someone's name. I feel like if I intentionally said someone who has a standard British name's name incorrectly, repeatedly, and then just gave up, that person would be indignant. Why can't we give that same courtesy to someone else? And I think it is such a powerful thing. It's just, you know, taking that much effort to learn and appreciate someone else's name. Yeah, like you said, it it doesn't really take that much effort to learn it. I know there are certain, you know, language barriers where it's like you might not be able to pronounce certain letters because of just the complexity of the language. But the fact that you try and maybe apologise for pronouncing it wrong, I think that person would give you a chance. It just at least feel kind of acknowledged. I think pupils do appreciate it quite a lot when you put that effort in. It's not even just from uh, BAME backgrounds. There's certain names that are local to the UK, which are uh, unusual compared to the regular English language, but such as the Irish name Aoife, which is spelt a bit unusually. When I got that right the first time, the expression on that kid's face was yeah. overjoyed that a teacher managed to say it properly. Yeah, is this the A-O-I-F-E? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd never had that name before. Well, I have, but I didn't know how it was spelt. And then um, I saw that on the register and 
do you know what? Instead of me attempting, I just said, so I was like, if your name is spelt like A-O-I-F-E, could you please tell me how to pronounce it? Because I don't want to get it wrong. And as soon as it said Aoife, I would just constantly say it like throughout the lesson, like Aoife, 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 just keep reminding me how to pronounce mm. it. And it almost made that student feel a bit more special, not in a bad way, but in a good way that, you know, at least the teacher's trying to make an effort to learn their name. Um, and actually that's good for us because there's not just one Aoife, there's lots of Aoife's around around schools so um it's just one more little thing for us to learn and one more kid that becomes happy that someone's learned their name or knows how to say their name learn kids names please if you're a teacher (laughs) listening to this learn their names (laughs) yeah honestly i it's just it seems like such a small thing but it's such a big thing for that person and it's that one step closer to building a positive you know relationship between a student and a teacher I mean, we've talked about this in previous episodes, like student-teacher relationships are so, so powerful, not just for classroom management, but also for progress within your subject and for communication. And actually just bothering and making that little bit of effort to learn someone's name is the first stepping stone. Exactly. That could be the thing that makes the difference in that child actually engaging in your lessons and engaging with your expectations because you're meeting a basic expectation of them that they have which is to be recognized and acknowledged properly yeah exactly right um right I've kind of spieled about all of my issues I've seen I'm sure there are loads more um Jake have you got any left that you want to unravel I've I've gone through my list but of course this is a enormous topic uh it would have been practically impossible to get everything into um one podcast which is why i think it's so good to have to offer this as a chance for discussion for sure i mean i mean i'm just a i'm just an indian who lived in africa and moved here jake's a whole kind of genetic mix of different um ethnic backgrounds and even then we're just two people and we've only experienced um you know very few schools um and very few experiences between us but I'm sure there's lots of people out there that have a lot to kind of say on this topic um so do get in touch with us we'd love to share it we'd love to probably you know share it as the intro for our um next you know talk around diversity and inclusion um again if anyone has any stories or any sort of suggestions on future episode if you'd like to get involved in one please 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 get in touch with us we're always looking for uh, collaborations um and we will try and fit you around and we'll find some time to record because both of us are incredibly busy during um term time but you know we'll do our best to release more episodes soon all right thank you so much for listening yeah thanks everyone if you haven't checked out our previous episodes go back um have a listen through some funny ones uh, but also some more research reality ones um and We'll see you for diversity and inclusion LGBTQ plus episode coming out later. Bye. Bye.